Hello and welcome. You have discovered season 3 of the 542 and the Blue podcast. Discussions of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond. Your host and narrator, Scott Lunsford, retired police detective sergeant, author and researcher. For more information, please go to scottlunsfordauthor.com. There you can find a link to the podcast website and information on Scott's books and how to order them. Scott can also be reached through the message portal there. Background music is open sourced and used with permission. This is Victoria, producer for 542 and the Blue. Scott, you're online. Thank you, Victoria and Alice, for getting us started on our current Shade of Blue story for 542 and the Blue. As Victoria said, our Shade of Blue story for today deals with power, control, and death. A crime spree that ended violently and dramatically over 30 years ago. But before we get into the main story, let's take a quick short side trip into North Carolina history just a minute. Now this information comes from the White House Historical Association, a good resource for history and information. On August 2nd, 1962, the FLUTS quadruplets, Mary Alice, Mary Louise, Mary Catherine, and Mary Ann. You might want to keep those middle names in the back of your mind just a little bit. They were taking a tour of the White House when President John F. Kennedy emerged at the Rose Garden to take part in a ceremony there. While he was getting ready for the ceremony, the White House press secretary, uh, Hatcher, introduced the president to the quadruplets, and they posed and did a photo op. The 16-year-old girls were from Milton, North Carolina, and they were considered a medical wonder, and widely followed by the American public after their miraculous birth on May 23, 1946. Now, at the time of their birth, they were the only set of identical quadruplets to actually survive birth, all four of them. They were born to an African-American parents, a deaf mute woman named Annie Marie, and a farmer named Peter, Peter Fultz, F-U-L-T-Z again. They were born at Penn Memorial Hospital in Reedsville, North Carolina. Keep in mind Penn Memorial Hospital again. Now due to the hospital's segregation policies at the time, the premature quadruplets were actually born in the basement and they were born weighing just three pounds each. To help the parents financially support the quadruplets, in addition to their other six children, Pet Evaporated Milk Company, a baby formula company, offered to cover all medical bills, provided an in-home nurse, and gave the family land and a home to live on. Now, in return, the quadruplets were featured in a lot of the company's marketing campaigns and advertisements throughout their childhood. The girls were also featured on the cover of Ebony Magazine on their first birthday. Not only had they met President Kennedy, but they also had the opportunity to meet President Harry S. Truman on April 16, 1950, when they were just four years old. 
At the time, they were in Washington, D.C. for a magazine photo story. And apparently it was a chance encounter at that time. Now, despite meeting presidents and posing for magazine covers, life in the public eye was difficult for the quadruplets due to their, their skin color at the time. The doctor that delivered the quadruplets was a white man by the name of Fred Klemer, K-L-E-N-N-E-R. Now, he took advantage of the mom and dad's illiteracy and made himself an unofficial guardian of the children setting up advertising campaigns with pet evaporated milk more for his benefit than for the kids. And it turns out, uh, Cleaner also named the children, providing middle names honoring his own female relatives. He released the children from the hospital and then advertised that visitors could go to the Flutz home to view them through a glass screen. And they did so as the girls continued to grow up. And as they grew up, they were continually feed advertisements for pet evaporated milk and appeared on many talk shows. They were rarely compensated for any of this work, while Cleaner continued to profit from the deals that he arranged. All four of the quadruplets died from breast cancer. The final sister, Mary Catherine, passed away at the age of 72, uh, two years ago in 2018. That's a little background and we're looking more at the cleaner, Dr. Cleaner, than our young ladies in this next section, in the next part of our story. On June 3rd, 1985, a Chevy Blazer driven by Fritz Cleaner, not senior, but junior, the son of the doctor, exploded on Highway 150 in Summerlin, North Carolina. Investigations showed that there was a bomb in the car and it killed a Susan Newsom Lynch, who happened to be uh, Cleaner's first cousin, lover, and co-conspirator. Her sons, John and Jim, were also in the blazer. Autopsy showed that they were poisoned and shot. This was right after Fritz tried to gun down police officers with an Uzi near the intersection of Friendly Avenue and New Garden Road, wounding two officers, one very seriously. It's a very sensational tale. Uh, there was actually a movie done about it in the late 80s, I believe. But when I ask around, not too many people remember it. It's a story of wealth, power, incest, and mental illnesses, and death. There was several newspaper articles at the time written by Mr. Jerry Bledsoe, an award-winning reporter and columnist for the news record. You can find these articles online. You can also find Jerry Bledsoe's nonfiction work that he wrote several years ago that was that has been published in and available at several bookstores including Amazon. It's under the title Bitter Blood. Now I'll just give you a quick summary of the events. Let's talk about some of the events that happened in this particular shade of blue. I told you about Fritz Cleaner Sr. Now we're looking at Fritz's son, Fritz Cleaner Jr. and his niece, Susie Sharp Newsom. 
They weren't especially close when they were growing up, despite being first cousins. They lived in different towns and had different interests. Not that unusual. The two young people at the time were born into wealth and influence. They weren't especially close growing up. They lived in different towns and had different interests. Susie was called Susie Q uh, after her aunt, Susie Sharp, who happened to be a North Carolina judge and who was the country's first elected female justice of state Supreme Court. Now, Susie's mother, Florence Newsom, was the justice's sister. She was born in Reedsville and raised in Winston-Salem. She was pretty and smart, and she liked being treated as a princess, and she was. Some called her spoiled. Her temper tantrums were so dramatic at one point, her mother could only stop these temper tantrums by pouring cold water on her. Now, growing older, she carried herself with the same regal presence of a princess and also became quite enamored and fixated on stories about the British royal family. When she was old enough, she enrolled at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, and of course, she became a fraternity sweetheart. Fritz Cleaner Jr. was seven years younger than Susie. His mother, Annie Hill Sharp Cleaner, was the sister of Florence Newsom and Judge Susie Sharp. His father, like we said, was Dr. Frederick Fred Cleaner Sr., a well-known and somewhat controversial doctor in Reedsville, North Carolina. Sr. was a graduate of Duke University Medical School. Uh, the elder believed large doses of vitamin C could cure polio and multiple sclerosis, and did a lot of research on that and prescribed a lot of vitamin C to individuals. Some of his patients and some other doctors thought he was pretty much a genius. Others, even some in the medical establishment, pretty much thought he was a quack. So he's one of those guys, whether you like him or don't, I guess. If you go online and, and just search for The Good Doctor, you'll find quite a bit of information on his research and his... Now, as a child, Fritz Nether... Now, Junior, as a child, never strayed pretty much far from his demanding father, hanging out at his office and going on hunting trips with him. Dad gave out attaboys and scoldings in the same, pretty much the same amount. Fritz was expected to earn straight A's, obey his father, not screw up or get in trouble. And when Fritz could not keep up with his dad's ideals, the good doctor withdrew his attention, ignoring his son, which ended up being a very severe punishment for one who, whose entire world was his father. Now, as we said, Senior made a lot of his money on exploiting the, on exploiting the four quadruplets. He probably would not have become as well known as influential in his vitamin uh, research and business if it hadn't been for the attention he got through the, uh, the quadruplets. Now Fritz Jr. also absorbed his father's odd ethos. Uh, very serious into the Catholicism, was ultra conservative and looking forward or looking towards the end of the world coming soon. He was thought of as a very strong racist. He kept his waiting room at his doctor's office 
he kept it separated and non-integrated all the way up into the 1980s. He had a very strong hatred of communists who he believed were threatening Western civilization and bringing the downfall of man. Now, Junior, after he graduated from Reedsville High, actually a very fine high school, I've had several friends of mine that graduated from there that I met in college. Fritz attended the University of Mississippi in Oxford, but he never graduated. When his father demanded to see the diploma after he left college, Fritz lied, claiming his enemies in the German department conspired to keep him from finishing his degree. And for some reason, his dad bought that. Fritz later told his father that he had corrected the misunderstandings with the university. He faked his graduation, faked an enrollment at Duke University Medical School, and was able to pull off and was able to pull all this off, and his father really couldn't be more proud of it. Now moving back to our princess, Susie Q. Now on the surface she appeared to be going pretty much better than Fritz. While at Wake Forest, she met a basketball player, a Tom Lynch. Blonde and upwardly mobile, he was born himself into a very wealthy family that lived outside of Louisville, Kentucky. Two years younger than Susie, he liked the attention she gave him. But, as is sometimes the case, his mother, Dolores, didn't like little Susie at all. As the relationship between the two progressed, Mother Dolores urged him to ditch her. Again, as is so often happens, Mom was not successful, and a proposal of marriage was made, and then a wedding date set. Mother and future daughter-in-law had a knockdown dragout fight on the day of the wedding, June 6, 1970, and that kind of put a damper on the festivities there in Winston-Salem for a little while. Now, Tom tried to work around the disagreements between his mother and his new wife, but that was a little bit difficult. The couple moved to Lexington, Kentucky. Tom had been accepted into dental school at the University of Kentucky there. Between his studies and her job at a research firm, the couple spent little time together, and even less time with mother-in-law. Apparently only seeing her one time in four years, even though they were living about an hour and a half away. Susie hated her mother-in-law and did not hide this fact. She and Tom moved later to Beaufort, South Carolina, where Tom had joined the Navy Reserve. And they had a son in 1974. Grandmother came from Kentucky to see the first grandchild and was told by the mom, get a hotel room, then make an appointment to see the baby. And grandmother ended up not seeing the child for over a year after it was born. It wasn't long after that that Tom opened up a new dental practice in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And that soon after that, a second child arrived, another boy. Now Susie didn't like living in New Mexico. She resented being stuck at home with two small children while Tom devoted most of his time to establishing his dental practice. She often talked about her prominent wealthy family and friends back in North Carolina she criticized the locals for their lack of culture and fashion sense. And at one point, there is evidence that showed up that she actually was involved in a child abuse situation, beating both of her children to the point that one of them ended up being hospitalized. 
Now, in this type of relationship, uh, tensions grew between the two. Their fighting becoming more frequent. And in July of 79, Susie and the children returned to North Carolina to spend some time with her dying grandfather. She had decided she wasn't going to return to New Mexico, but she didn't bother to tell Tom that until later. Tom eventually signed a separation agreement giving her full custody of the two children, four and three years old. Now, strangely, wanting, I guess, some sort of adventure, Susie, by the end of the year, moved to China with both boys where she taught English for about six months. Now, adventure apparently was a little too messy for Susie. Uh, the normal air pollution that was there in China and her, and her standards of living were much higher than the local residents and where she had to live while she taught in China. When she and her sons returned to Greensboro, Six months later, Susie was thin, weak, and demoralized. She was no longer the princess she had been, or at least who she thought she was. Seeing this, her mother insisted that she make an appointment to go see her uncle, Dr. Fred Cleaner, for treatment. And she did. And it wasn't long that she was also seeing Fritz at well. And Susie was under the impression, like everyone else, that Junior was a medical student at Duke University, his father's alma mater. And when he wasn't in school, he was oftentimes found in his father's doctor's office wearing a lab coat and a stethoscope and pretending to be a doctor. Fritz was going to extraordinary lengths to show the world, mostly his father, not only was he enrolled in medical school, but he was considered somewhat of a prodigy by the school. Now, Fritz kept apartments in Reedsville and Durham, where he stayed Mondays through Thursdays to attend class or perform rounds at the hospital, is what he told everyone. Other days, he worked with his father in his Reedsville hospital, like I said, dressed up like a doctor. The patients there referred to him often as young Dr. Cleaner, but friends had a different name for him. They called him Dr. Crazy. So apparently some people were figuring out what was going on. Junior always carried a medical bag dispensing stress pills, offering various injections and of course pushing his father's vitamin C treatments. These Fritz prescribed a lot of times as they were mostly over-the-counter medications and he could get a hold of them relatively easy without too much of a problem. He became friendly with the owners of a gun shop in Hillsborough. He told tales and stories about rescuing his father from certain death. And he also lied about being a Green Beret and that he had fought behind enemy lines in, in Vietnam. And of course, no story would have been complete without Fritz confiding in those closest to him that his real job was a CIA super secret dangerous undercover agent working for the government, which I'm sure you have already guessed or already know, he was none of that was true. Soon after reconnecting at the doctor's office, the two cousins began spending a lot of time together, eventually almost all of their time together. Fritz spent most of his nights at her apartment near Guilford College. He took the boys camping and even told them to call him Papa, 
It's kind of weird. Actually, very weird. Family and friends pretended or ignored what was pretty obvious. The fact that the first cousins had developed a relationship and had become lovers. Fritz became Susie's protector by convincing her that her ex-husband, Tom, was plotting to kidnap the boys. And she responded by limiting their contact with their dad and at very least monitoring it very closely. And at times she would only allow them to talk to their dad and the imaginary CIA agent Fritz would always record these calls for future reference and evidence. Susie would even toss the presents out that the dad sent the boys unopened. Even cookies and foodstuffs were thrown out because they might be poisoned. Now the original agreement allowed dad a few holiday visits and a few weeks in the summer but pretty much that was about it. And Susie refused to allow him any more access than what they had originally agreed to. Now when Tom did see them, they appeared thin, withdrawn, and scared, and loaded down with large quantities of vitamin C that Fritz had insisted they take with them to Albuquerque. Dad decided to take legal action after seeing this to boost his visitation rights overall. In May 1984, Dr. Fred Cleaner Sr. died at Moorhead Hospital in Eden, North Carolina. He passed away there because of an ongoing grudge and disagreement the doctor had with the Penn Hospital in Reedsville, what it appears that goes back to the birth of the quadruplets. And, of course, Fritz became the grieving son, told in a large crowd gathered in the waiting room about his dramatic but ultimately unsuccessful attempt to save his father's life. And a lot of family members thought that this would send Junior into pretty much a death spiral. And it did to a certain extent. He became quite strange. And he became more strange. As the custody hearings wound their way through court, Susie's paranoia grew, and she resented the time that Tom and his new wife spent with the boys, especially when they visited ex-mom-in-law in Kentucky. Now, on July 24, 1984, the two boys were with dad and stepmom in Albuquerque and just two days away from a trip to see his mother and the boy's grandmother in Kentucky when dad received a very devastating, tragic news. The grandmother, Tom's mother, and his sister had both been killed, shot multiple times at close range with a high-powered weapon. Kentucky police stated that it looked like a professional hit. Susie refused Tom's request to extend the boys' stay in New Mexico so they could grieve as a family, and the children ended up coming back to North Carolina. Now, as investigators in Kentucky tried to figure out what was going on and look for clues, Tom received a note from his mother-in-law, Florence Newsom, or excuse me, his former mother-in-law. He used it as an opportunity to explain his court actions. All he wanted, he wrote, was a normal, healthy relationship with his boys. Now, his ex-mother-in-law, she agreed with that and stated that it was important the boys have a strong and good relationship with your father. And she also stated she hoped that something could be arranged to that effect. The father and his ex-mother-in-law and father-in-law began communicating 
uh, on a fairly regular basis and sending pictures back and forth and describing the visits and what's going on with the kids because Tom couldn't get that from the biological mother, Susie. And it came down to the point that the Newsoms, Tom's mother-in-law and father-in-law, agreed to testify about visitation on Tom's behalf in a new court case. And of course we know what this did to Susie. She went nuts and she became more fearful each day of losing the boys. She told relatives that Tom had mob connections and used that to explain why his mother and sister were killed gangland style. She knew this to be true, she said, because Fritz was with the CIA and told her. Fritz had convinced another person he worked for the CIA, an Ian Perkins, a 21-year-old from a prominent regional family and a student at Washington and Lee University in Virginia. Perkins had known Fritz pretty much all his life, looked up to him. They shared a common love of patriotism, a hatred of communism, and a fascination with guns. Perkins had told Fritz that he wanted a career in government intelligence after college. So, in the spring of 1985, Fritz appealed to that desire when he told Perkins about his work with the CIA. Fritz needed Perkins' help with a covert mission to kill foreign drug traffickers. It was a triad of sorts, Fritz told him, and he would evaluate Perkins' performance to determine whether he was worthy of other missions and full-time employment with the Central Intelligence Agency. And of course, the spy-struck Perkins agreed. And the weekend of May 17th, 1985, around 11 p.m., Perkins dropped Fritz in the Old Town neighborhood section of Winston-Salem. Just after midnight, Fritz came back and picked and met up with Perkins, who had completed the so-called mission. That night, three people were killed a half mile from the drop-off point. Bob and Florence Newsom, the cousin's mother, his, his aunt and uncle, Bob's mother, Hattie. Now, on May 30th, 1985, before the, three days before the entire thing fell apart, Winston-Salem police detectives questioned a wannabe secret agent, Mr. Perkins, about his whereabouts the night the Newsoms were killed. I'm not sure how they linked up that he was involved. Now, Fritz had used Perkins as an alibi when they questioned him. And the two had planned for such a scenario and had rehearsed their story very well. They had been camping together in the Virginia mountains that weekend were not even in North Carolina. But when the Kentucky officers pressured Perkins, who were looking at their homicide, he finally tearfully confessed the truth. He wasn't supposed to tell anyone, but he was assisting cleaner on a covert CIA mission. And on Saturday, May 18th, he had driven him to Winston-Salem to kill communists. They were raiding an American arsenal, smuggling the arms to South America, and trading them for large quantities of drugs, which they sold, of course, at a profit. The Russian KGB was involved, and the mission just so happened to take place the same weekend and about a half mile away from where the Newsoms were killed. The detectives, recognizing Perkins' gullibility, realized he had swallowed Fritz's story, and they shared the truth with him. 
Fritz was neither a doctor nor 007. He was, in fact, a suspect in the Kentucky homicides and the North Carolina homicides. Now, Perkins, realizing he had been had, agreed to wear a wire and try to get a confession from Fritz. He met with Fritz twice, both times he said police were questioning him about uh, the deaths, and both times he asked Fritz whether he had anything to do with them, and Fritz stuck to his CIA yarn. He gave Perkins several pills from his medicine bag to help him stay calm under interrogation. Perkins met with Fritz again. Perkins climbed into the passenger seat of Cleaner's blazer. He was terrified that Fritz would see the wire, microphone, and recording device and kill him. Instead, Fritz came as close as he ever would to confessing. Uh, the statement he made was, I'll write a paper saying you were not knowingly involved, that you believed you were on a covert mission for the government. But I've got things to do. I won't see you again. Perkins didn't know at that time, and he couldn't have known, that he was actually sitting on top of a large bomb that someone would detonate about two hours later in Summerfield, North Carolina. Now, the police had set up Fritz at this point, and a caravan of unmarked police cars followed him away from the meeting point until he arrived at Susie's apartment. Meanwhile, using the information, the Forsyth County District Attorney's Office authorized an arrest warrant based on his kind of confession. And soon, law enforcement personnel, and a lot of them, had the apartment surrounded from a distance. The Forsyth County Sheriff deputies detectives from the Kentucky State Police, agents from the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation were on the ground and in the air. The Greensboro Police Department had sent a detective to serve as a liaison, and a local officer, Tommy Dennis, who was a squad leader with Greensboro, was close by and headed that way to assist with what was supposed to be an arrest. He didn't know the details, only that he would be helping other law enforcement agencies approach and take a felon suspect into custody. Now, as detectives watched, Fritz and Susie loaded the blazer with what looked like camping equipment. John, Jim, their two boys, and their chow dog got into the back seat, and Susie got into the passenger seat, and they pulled out of the apartment complex and left. A... Greensboro detective pulled in at that point and blocked the blazer. Other officers materialized and waved Fritz to stop. An SBI agent held up a pistol and his badge for Fritz to see. Fritz pulled the blazer up onto the curb, drove around the police cars, and continued on his way. Now, Dennis in his squad car, approaching, had heard this, and he was coming from the west. He flipped on his blue lights still not knowing the specifics of the situation, made a U-turn and tried to get behind the blazer. When two unmarked cars, one from the SBI, the other driven by a Forsyth County Sheriff's deputy, also made U-turns, one of the vehicles swerved into Officer Dennis's vehicle. He swerved and skidded into the blazer and hit it at the driver's side door, ending up about 10 feet from Fritz. Officer Dennis looked up at this point to see a 9mm Uzi pointed at him and Fritz smiling. 
according to his statement. And Fritz opened up with the Uzi. Five bullets hit the officer's squad car, and two hit the officer. One struck him in his chest, impacting his vest, and the second grazed his belt buckle. Fritz continued to fire the Uzi indiscriminately. Officers returned fire. Uh, one Kentucky detective took a bullet from the Uzi under his right arm. Uh, Fritz appeared to be boxed in by all the cars, but he did manage to bang his way out. He pulled the blazer up onto the road, and again, a chase begun. And he was followed by a heck of a lot of police cars, with more on their way. Now, driving real slow this time, and then slowing down to open fire on the officers behind him, Fritz turned on NC-150. Realizing now that the Uzi was empty and he had run out of magazines, at this point, the blazer, while the police were chasing it, simply exploded. This ended up being at 3.07 p.m. in the afternoon. Officers that were chasing the vehicle carefully approached, fearing that there might be other bombs. Most of the officers were reported as saying they had never seen anything like that in their entire career, as gruesome as the explosion was. Susie lay in a culvert, the lower part of her body blown off from the bomb that had, she had been sitting on. The boys were in upright positions in the remains of the blazer's back seat, the dog between them. Further investigation and autopsies, they found both of the boys were already dead when the bomb exploded. They had been poisoned with cyanide, then shot in the head by their mother. Now Fritz survived, but just for a few minutes. A detective from Kentucky found him still breathing. He leaned over and tried to get a confession or some sort of statement from Fitz, but he just gurgled and died. Now, in a strange coincidence, but possibly fitting, within moments after Fritz breathed his last and died, the sky turned black, wind and lightning started up, a torrential rainstorm forced the officers to take cover, and then pending the investigation and the recovery of evidence, hail the size of marbles started falling and beating on the lifeless bodies of Susie and Fritz, the princess and the protector. So... We have three family members killed by sniper fire. The next year we have three more family members killed by sniper fire. And then we have three more members killed in a bomb explosion. Well, excuse me. The two children had been killed prior to the bomb explosion. Things are all related and interconnected. If Cleaner Sr. had not been involved with the quadruplets and made so much money in his exploitation of them and their family, would Junior have turned out the way he did? We don't know. And that's the, we'll never know. And that's part of life. We can't change things once they've already occurred. If you'd like more information on this story and more detailed information, I would recommend the nonfiction book Bitter Blood by that was written by the newspaper author, Jerry Bledsoe, actually was a New York Times bestseller, and it's still available in print, and used copies are available too online if you would like to get one of those. It's a very, very interesting read. That's this episode, Shade of Blue.
If you would like more information on this episode and story and some of the other stories that have been done, check out my website, scottlunsfordauthor.com, where you can find not only information on the podcast, but links to my books, uh, fiction and nonfiction, on the webpage. And I can be contacted through the contact page of that website as well. If you have information, suggestions for possible stories or possible research, or you have other comments that you would like to make or get in touch with me about, you can do that through the website. Thank you, Victoria and Alice, for getting us up and going. And in the coming weeks, I hope everyone stays safe and secure. And remember, do something nice for somebody. It'll do you and another person a whole lot of good. Go ahead and close us out, Alice. You have been listening to 542 in the Blue podcast, a discussion of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond. 542 in the Blue, hosted by Scott Lunsford. For more information, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com. You can find a link to the podcast and information on Scott's books and how to order them. Scott can be reached through the message portal there. This is Alice, engineer for 542 in the Blue. Thank you for listening.